following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
as the snows melt on Mount Hermon. That water flows down into the water table. It's the beginning of the Sea of Galilee. As you go to Caesarea Philippi, you find the fresh springs coming up out of that water from Mount Hermon. They flow down, and that is the beginning on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. Bethsaida, as you face Mount Hermon, is over on the right-hand side. On the left-hand side is Capernaum and Magdala. Now, Bethsaida was the home of Peter. Peter, Andrew, and others came from Bethsaida. At a later date, they moved over to Capernaum. Capernaum was closer to Magdala. You'll understand the significance of that as I share with you today. They were businessmen. They were fishermen. James and John, with their father, had a family business. But Peter would awaken late in the afternoon, perhaps evening, and he would head to his fishing boat. And there he would put together the nets that had dried in the sun, and he would put those in the fishing boat, and out he would go with his hired hand, or with whoever was fishing with him. And as the night went on, they would go to their favorite places to catch fish. And they would cast out their circular nets, weighted with stones. The net would sink down into the water, and then they would pull it together. And then they'd pull that net up to the boat to see what they had caught. And as they caught fish, they would open that net and put the fish in big baskets on the bottom of that boat. They would fish all night. And then as dawn was breaking, they would head with their boats with many others to the little town of Magdala. I've walked the streets of Magdala. It was recently uncovered. I've been to the synagogue in Magdala. The fresco is beautiful on the wall of that synagogue, still has color. The inlaid floor with the mosaic. The main street of Magdala. The shops that were all along the street. I can see Mary of Magdala as she swished her skirts and made her contacts in her town. It was probably there she first heard Jesus as he came into Magdala and taught in their synagogue. It was not a large synagogue, but it was beautiful, and it had the seat of Moses. He cast seven demons out of her, and she became a follower. But let's go back to Peter. Peter, James, and John and other fishermen would come in the early hours of the morning to Magdala, and there they would sell their fish. There was a large processing plant, large for that day. The fish would be cleaned, they would be salted down, 
and they would be shipped to Rome. Rome was the primary source to buy their fish. So Peter looks at the money he has and figures out what his expense is for the hired hand. Perhaps they go then to an early breakfast at some shop in Magdala. And then Peter, with his boat, heads back to home, whether it was either in Bethsaida or later in Capernaum. And there they would pull their nets out, soaking wet from the night's work. And they would dry them in the sun, spread them out. And they would repair their net. Perhaps they had caught something on a a rock. Or perhaps some large number of fish had broken through their net. They would repair the net. You remember Jesus came while they were repairing their nets and asked Peter to push off a little from the land so he could sit in the boat to teach. The place where the Sermon on the Mount was given is just very close by. It's literally between Magdala and Capernaum. Now, as you walk this area, as I have, and you go out on that Sea of Galilee and you look at it, part of what threw me when I went there I said, I wish I'd not even been here to to see this. We stayed in Tiberias, the the business city of, of King Herod. It is a place of commerce. Jerusalem was considered the backwater area. This was the business area that was very prosperous. And in the midst of this, Jesus lived in Nazareth. The disciples all lived close by. Magdala is just a short walk from Capernaum or Tiberias. So Peter would go to bed, get some sleep, and start all over. He had a wife. We don't know that he had children, but he had a wife. I've seen what they think is Peter's home. The foundation is still there as they have been excavating it. Now, why am I telling you this? Because Peter and the other disciples had a very busy life. They had responsibilities. They had ways of thinking, ways of acting. They were born into a system. And so have we all been born into a system. We're taught the system by those around us. We learn the system in school. We're comfortable in the system called the church or the business 
or the marketplace or the school or the institutions of authority, the family. And so we find it difficult to pray. Why? Because we're comfortable in a defeated system, in a sick system that has put serious constraints on the Spirit of God. And when we begin to pray, we're praying from the mindset of that system. That's why this man, Nathaniel, said, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Are you kidding me? The Messiah out of Nazareth? He couldn't, he couldn't accept this. You're listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley. I'm glad you've joined today. I pray this broadcast alerts you, opens your eyes to see the system that you're caught in. Wasn't it Frank Sinatra who said, I did it my way? It's an evil song. But most of us, with all honesty, have done almost everything our own way. For some reason, we become so caught in what we are experiencing in our system that it becomes the big central part of our heart, and we don't look at what God's system is. And if we look at what God's system is, we look at it through the eyes of the wicked system we're caught in today in our world. And we understand everything out of our own perspective. When I dared to suggest in a meeting, a revival meeting, that we should turn off the television and forsake forever the professional sports, many of the men sitting in the congregation looked at me with absolute scorn. They shook their heads. They looked at each other and smiled. This man is hopeless. We might as well not even listen to him. Why? Because I was going against their system. I was calling their system evil. I was saying that if you are a part of this system and your heart lusts after the professional sports or the pornography or the drugs, the opiates, if your system lusts after the lifestyle of the rich and the famous, if in your heart what you truly desire is to be successful and to be somebody. You are a part of a wicked system. And when someone comes and begins to say to you, look, you've got to turn aside from this, you say, what are you talking about? Are you crazy? Are you insane? Because we've learned to trust our system. We've learned to become comfortable in our way of life. And now we're willing, perhaps, to add God onto that system of our life. We're willing to incorporate it. A dear friend just passed, just died. This next Saturday, I'll go to his memorial service. Cancer took his life. 
I've talked to this man about who have you brought to Jesus? And his answer is, those aren't my gifts. He was a churchman and an awesome churchman. He did an amazing amount of service for his congregation as a lay elder and as someone who was on the vestry and as someone who who helped with the building fund, who helped with the plans for the new church. This man was a wonderful Christian brother with a heart full of love and sacrifice. But when I began to speak with him about the primary object of our life, must be beyond the church. It must be to the lost and the dying. He could not begin to comprehend that. It seemed utterly foreign to him. And so he passed, having never brought anyone to Jesus. What will the Lord say to him about that? I leave it in the Lord's hands. I can't make a judgment. But he's like countless other wonderful church men and women who are part of the system of America. And they're not a part of what God is trying to do to save the nation. In Isaiah 55, 9, the prophet speaking for God said, My ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts from your thoughts. So, most of the time when we pray, we pray out of an understanding of our system, our generation, our denomination, our job, our culture, our customs. We feel comfortable because they're acceptable to us. We say, Lord, this is where we are. Will you come down to our way of operating and and would you answer our cry? And God says, wait a moment. Will you seek my face? Will you forsake your ways, your wicked ways? Will you come out of the way you do things to seek after the way I want them done? You say, Lord, this is the way we do things here. That's not our culture. We're part of a denomination. Our culture is different. And the Lord says, okay, go on your way. But when you forsake your wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. And I will forgive you and I will heal your land. Listen, everything's going to pass away, including your life. But the word of God will never pass away. God has the blueprint for everything that he wants done in our culture. The Bible says he made the nations. If you look at all the institutions in your your, uh, nation, in America, can you find a word about them in the Bible? Everything in government, business, stewardship, family, sexual relations, education, environment, sanitation. It's all in the word. But our world has taught us to think in a particular way 
And the Bible says, The way a man thinketh, so is he. The way we think has molded our lives, and now we are programmed. We flow without effort in that way, and when the Lord reveals His way, we feel those things are difficult and different. We're used to this way, God. This is how we do things here. We want you to bless us. We want you to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. But the Lord says, In which wineskin? Your old one? Or the new one I'm offering you? The reason prayer meetings have died in most churches is that there's very little to show in the way of answers to their prayer. Why? Because we're stuck in our ways. We feel very comfortable in them. We feel no guilt. We want the blessing to come. But when we're really desperate for the Holy Spirit, we need to begin to pray, Lord, whatever it takes to show me the way then please, Lord, show me. Please come and change my life and use me. When God says this is the way, and we say, no, I can't do it. It's not my culture. It's not my denomination. The question to ask is this, who will be right, you or God? Whose word will stand, yours or God's? I've listened so long in the church. I've been in the church for many, many years, from the time I was a small child. I've watched the bickering and the fighting. I've watched the ungodly battle against the current pastor till finally he's removed and sent to another church. And then everybody says, okay, now we can go back to normal. And the new pastor comes and we'll train him how to be a good pastor for us. We don't want that confronting word of God against our sin. We want something that goes on that's socially acceptable and and tells us we're making progress and we have ministries out in the community and we're doing great things for God and we're on our way to heaven. No, you're not. Our church has four services every Sunday. We're doing great. No, you're not. The city is not being transformed. It's not being changed. Can I tell you a dirty little secret? The church in America has given up on the lost and the dying. Now we want friendship evangelism. We want people who are like us, who can be comfortable with us in our style of church. We want to grow through friendship and through parties and through outings and through concerts and have a wonderful concert and then at the end say, anyone who would like to accept Jesus, he'll give you salvation free of charge. It doesn't cost you a thing. Just sign this paper. You're saved. I sat in a church, a large church in Springfield, Virginia, It was their Christmas cantata. And 
the break, the pastor stood up and said, you have in front of you a, a, a sheet. If you take it out and look at it, it says, if you will accept Jesus, he will give you salvation free of charge. He has unconditional love for you. And if you'd like to be saved, just sign the paper on the bottom, hand it in, and you're saved. And you're on their way to heaven. Are you kidding me? No, you're not. You're not even close to being on your way to heaven. This is man's way. This is Frank Sinatra all over again. I did it my way. You can't do it your way and enter into heaven. When God says this is the way, then you have to say yes. You have to say yes, Lord. The humble spirit will always say, God, this is the way I was brought up. This is the way I was taught. This is the way I see things. This is the way I know how to do it. In my understanding, what you are saying is impossible. But because you have said so, I will obey you. Because you have spoken, I will trust in you. One man, the Lord came to him in a dream. Said, you're robbing me. He woke up. How am I robbing you, God? He looked at Malachi. God says, you're robbing me with tithes and offerings. Deep conviction fell upon his heart. He doesn't have the money to tithe. He doesn't have the money to give offerings. He has huge financial responsibilities. They're unmet. How can he how can he give a tithe or an offering? He said to the Lord, It's impossible. I can't do it, but I will because you commanded it, and it's done. And he acted on it. Now you want to hear, Oh, he was blessed and, and he's prospering. No, he's not. He's standing by faith. He's watching his Lord. Serving Jesus is not a quick get-rich scheme. It's a quick death scheme. We die to self that we might live for Christ. Because you've spoken, Lord, I will trust in you. Now, Lord, help me. Show me how to start. What's the next step? What do I need to do to change? What do I need to give up? Oh, Lord, what are you telling me? It's so scary to do what you're telling me. What will happen to me? What will my family think? How do I manage this? I'm willing, Lord, to do whatever you tell me to do. I will follow. Even if it's not easy, I will follow. Please, Lord, strengthen me. People are going to hate me. They're going to misunderstand me. But if that's what you say, I will follow you. This is where revival can begin. 
it's not in the great pastors gathering and preaching wonderful sermons it's not in the prophetic actions done without a broken heart or a great prayer meeting in a church or a stadium we do all sorts of funny things we can try all of our modern ways of changing the world but the bible doesn't change We can convince ourselves that we are doing the right thing and call that revival. But Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. It all goes back to this. Whoever will give up his life for the Lord will get it back again. But he who retains it will lose his life forever. Now in the scriptures... In Matthew, the 24th chapter, I want to begin reading for you at verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then if you go with me to Luke, the 17th chapter, I'll begin reading with verse 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate and they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So these two passages are saying to us that there is a system. Now, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. Is there any sin in building? Not necessarily. In planting? Of course not. Drinking? We all are thirsty. We drink. They bought. They went shopping. They sold things. They did business. They planted. And yet on that day, fire and brimstone fell from heaven and destroyed them. In other words, their system was not sacred. Their system did not keep them from entering into violence against one another, sexual immorality. It didn't keep them walking in a place of holiness. The system is not something we can trust. Some of you are so confident in going to work, in going home and taking care of the family, in doing something good for your neighbor, in being a good churchman or churchwoman, sitting on committees, 
leading various kinds of ministries. You're all confident in the systems that you've set up in your life. But you don't win anyone to Jesus. You're not really concerned about the nation. Oh, you may be concerned about some of the problems in the nation. Some of you are strong against abortion, as I am. Some of you are very concerned about the gay rights issue and the wicked marriage between a man and a woman when the state did not invent marriage. God did, and he's the one who says it's between a man and a woman. So two men can't get married, and two women can't get married, according to God, and he's the one who founded marriage. You can be very involved in many different kinds of issues. That system will not save your soul. And you can pray and ask for the blessing of the Holy Spirit. But you will not receive. And so as you find that your prayers are not answered, you stop praying as much and your prayers become cold and formalistic. You say pretty much the same thing every time. You have an emotional attraction to Jesus. Or you have a rigid control of, I'm going to live righteous. And I'm going to do it right. Can I tell you, none of that's going to work. It won't work. I know I've tried it. It doesn't work. They were eating and drinking until the Lord rained down fire and brimstone and destroyed them all and carried them away. The Holy Spirit comes when we make a decision that we're not going to do it our way. When we make a decision that we are not going to demand that God do it our way, you realize we're in trouble. America is in trouble financially. We're getting wiped out. We're going to see famine and destruction in this land as God's judgments are poured out. We're headed for a very difficult time. Why? Because we demanded that we do it our way. And so the church today is a toothless entity that has almost no impact on a culture. We don't walk in the power of the Spirit. Almost everything is geared around the principles of church growth and pleasing and meeting the needs of people. Jesus didn't call us to focus our church on meeting the needs of people. The church is to be focused on meeting God's needs, not our needs. We're to come in humble repentance 
in prayer and supplication. We're to give up our system and take on God's system. We're to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, my heart is deeply troubled by what I see happening in our nation. Acts, the first chapter. Jesus gave this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now because the Holy Spirit has been so grieved from the church, many modern churches teach that in our day the Holy Spirit no longer comes, that all we need are the Scriptures. Why do they take that position? To cover up their own wickedness, their own self-righteousness, to cover up and pretend that we're not supposed to have this gift of the Holy Spirit. It's very clear, however, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And by the end of that first century, the gospel of Jesus had literally spread to the ends of the earth. We need that great awakening again. And the only way it's going to happen is by the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 15, you can do nothing without me. That's not, you can do nothing without my teaching. It's not, you can do nothing without my institution called church. No, it's you can do nothing without me. And he said, I'm going to send the comforter. And he's going to come in my place. And then through you, he's going to convict. The Holy Spirit's going to convict the world. They went back to Jerusalem and they entered into prayer. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. The first church was a prayer meeting. All they did was gather and pray and share together and talk together and pray together and talk and share waiting on the gift of the Holy Spirit. At the National Prayer Chapel, that's what we've been doing. And we're uncovered, because as we've done that, we become more and more clear about where the Holy Spirit is speaking to us regarding our lives and what He's asking for and submitting to that and walking in that and confessing that we are sinners. Confessing that there are areas where we have in our own ways, not in outward sin, but in our ways. We've done it our way. 
There's nothing quite so deceptive as being totally self-centered and looking at everything and everybody through our own eyes and not seeing them through Jesus' eyes. I want to tell you the world is dying for the lack of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are places in this world where that gospel is going forward with great power and authority and the demon powers are being broken and there's revival happening. China is one of those places. There are other places like that. That has to happen now in America. And it's going to require that the church stop doing church in our system with our institutional approach and it's going to require that we call sin by its right name that we confess everything before the Lord remember when I shared the story with you of Charles Finney in his self-righteousness he said why do I want the church to pray for me They none of their prayers are answered but the Holy Spirit wouldn't leave him alone. And finally, he said, all right, I'll be a Christian. So he went up on the hillside to pray in the seclusion of the woods. Every time he heard a leaf rustle, he leaped to his feet. See, somebody would see him praying. How could he let anybody see him praying? And he tried to pray and he couldn't pray. And as he struggled with that, he finally acknowledged he could not pray. And the Holy Spirit spoke to him in his heart and said, You're a proud man. When he finally acknowledged his pride, He fell on his knees before the Lord and didn't care any longer who heard him pray and bellowed out his confession, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He had to confess his arrogance and his pride, his self-sufficiency. He was studying and was becoming an attorney. He was finally qualified. But the Lord called him to pastoral ministry. And he said yes. He became a very great revivalist who probably brought more people into the body of Christ than any other person in the modern ages, perhaps as many as the Apostle Paul, all without radio or television or cell phones or computers by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I have to confess to you, I have not received this baptism. And I would be happy if the Lord would no longer cause me to do this radio broadcast until I have finished the prayer work and the Lord has given that full anointing. He will. I know He will. I stand by faith. He's told me to wait on him. He's told me to rest in him. And I'm doing that, and he's 
striving in my life in many different ways, bringing me through very, very painful times. I can't claim to be anybody. I'm not. I'm the least of God's people. So I don't come saying I'm somebody and you need to listen to me. You don't need to listen to me. You need to listen to the Holy Spirit. You need to listen to Jesus. You need to turn aside from your own way. I ask you, join me in turning aside from your own way and ask Jesus to show you the way he would have you walk. Some of you are so accustomed to your special Jewish music or to your special this or that or to your special preacher. You've got your system all down. But you have no power. Where's the congregation you're raising up? Where are the converts that you bring to church with you? Do you have a congregation that comes with you to your church? Because of your testimony and your witness and the power of the Spirit moving in your life? Or are you like me, dead and need to be brought to life? So I can't come and claim to be anybody and pretend that I'm some great preacher. I'm not. I'm nobody. I'm nothing. I'm waiting on Jesus. Do you understand? Jesus is somebody. But we filled our schedules so full of all the activities and our whole system, and we're about making money and getting ahead and paying our debts and taking care of business. No time for Jesus. And those of you who do make time for Jesus, make time for Jesus within the framework of your own understanding and your own your own pain and your own struggle. So you are absorbing everything for you. What about the lost? What about the dying? Since when is the church supposed to be full of food to eat for themselves, to feast on the feast of God in the church? Isn't it to be taken out to the world? Oh, my brother, my sister, we're in trouble before a holy God. We have done it our way. And our way has brought us a lukewarm, dead church filled with every kind of wickedness, political intrigue, power grabbing, lust for money. Some pastors have just frankly given up and said, okay, I'm going to talk to them about strategies for winning and making money and getting ahead and getting rich on God. I could name them, but I won't. Oh, there has to be another way. There has to be a way of humility before an almighty God. We're going to have to ask Jesus to come and show us what the next step is for us. And then we're going to have to be willing to take that next step, no matter what it means. Where he sends us, we must go. Where he calls us, we must go. I know there are people listening right now to this broadcast. The Holy Spirit has spoken to you. He's told you what he wants you to do. And you're saying, no. 
I'm not comfortable. If you're unwilling to be uncomfortable to follow Jesus, you will never follow Jesus. Oh, you'll follow the church polity. You'll follow the doctrines of the day. You'll follow, but not Jesus. Some of you, Jesus has been striving in for a long time. And every time he's striven with you, you've turned it aside with an excuse. And you've said, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to do that. I'm done. I'm mad. Oh, my brother, my sister, when will you turn back to Jesus and say, no matter what it costs me, I'm going to follow him. Regardless of how painful, I am going to follow him. Are you so sure you're right that you will not accept the grace of God and the forgiveness of Jesus so you can maintain your position? Are you so sure you're right in pursuing the culture and the practices that you've become accustomed to? Are you really so sure? Or do you want Jesus? The Pharisees were so certain of their system that they did not even comprehend that this was God standing in front of them. And they they accused him of being the devil. They accused him of casting out the dead or the devil by the power of the devil. They accused him of healing the sick by the power of the devil. Oh, they were righteous men and women. They were church people. But they refused the confrontation that Jesus brought to their wicked hearts. They wanted their comfortable church. They wanted their comfortable synagogue. They wanted everything to continue as it is so I could go ahead with my life the way I wanted so that I could watch the movies and the television programs i could go to the clubs i could go do what i want to do i could go to nascar i can go to the football i can go to the baseball i can do everything i want to do i do it my way do it my way i know people and have talked with people and struggled with people they're so sure they're right I've been so sure I'm right so many times. I was so right I was wrong. Are you sure you're right? If the power of the Holy Spirit is not in your life and you are not winning people to Jesus, oh, don't tell me I've been baptized in the Spirit and I speak in tongues. Where's the fruit? If there's no fruit, it's a false baptism. You see, the Holy Spirit is concerned about bringing Jesus to the lost and the dying, the hurting. Jesus is interested in the nation and pushing out the powers of darkness and bringing in the power of Jesus. 
America is not lost. Jesus is going to rescue us. It's not over for America. There's going to be a great awakening in this nation. I want to be a part of that. But I can only be a part of that if I am filled by the Spirit of the living God. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, I love America. I love this nation, but not nearly as much as you love America. And I desire with all of my heart to see you move in power, in revival power, to restore what the devil has stolen from us, to restore integrity, to restore the peace of God, to restore righteousness to our land. Lord, there are those who have taken over the levers of government. There are those who have grabbed a hold of our school boards. There are those who have grabbed our county councils. Lord, they've come and taught evil. I'm asking Jesus, come and rebuke the darkness. I pray in your holy name. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley. I'm so glad you've listened today. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. You can donate online or you can write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. That's the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon.